Today, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. Uh, this signals that this is the last week of his life. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Passover is the biggest feast, the biggest celebration of the Jewish people, and it celebrates uh, their rescue out of slavery into freedom. Uh, it, it's marked by the sacrifice of a spotless, perfect lamb. That's what the people are there to celebrate, and that's what Jesus enters into. And we know that there is a crowd of people uh, not only following him because of what he's done, his miracles, and all that sort of stuff, but there's a crowd of people because of Passover. And in our story today, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on all things, of all things, <laughs> a donkey. Uh, and he's going to ride in and he is going to be hailed and praised as what? King. He's going to be proclaimed king as he rides in on a donkey. It's, it's, it's a coronation of sorts. It's a picture of a ruler coming into his capital city, being celebrated and praised as king. But it's not like modern day coronations. Um, it's not flashy. It's not ornate. It's not televised. Uh, this is not the, the British monarchy establishing a new king. No, this is humble much like his entrance into this world. Uh, but this coronation that is setting up the rest of his time in Jerusalem. And what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem, finally, is accomplishing the purpose that he was sent for. But he is becoming a very, very clear dividing line. And you're either one of his followers or you're one of his enemies. Jesus is setting this out time and time again in his teaching, but he, now he's made it very, very clear. So let's look at it in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. We'll read all the way to 48 at the end of the chapter. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, it's the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, away, uh, were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty work they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the uh, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
And for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this word, God. And I thank you that you are the king, God. And you are... um, the one sent from the Father who came um, to accomplish what you've been sent for. And what you've been accomplished to be sent for, what you've been sent to accomplish was to rescue us out of slavery by dying as the perfect spotless lamb of God. God, and because of that, we hail you as king today, the true king over all things. God, and we hang on your every word. Our, our life and our spiritual life and our eternity uh, ride completely on your word, God. And so today I pray that, that if there's any of us in the room who are on the other side of the line who are your enemies and do not want you as our king and do not hang on your every word and, and live by your word, God, I pray that you would move them from death to life. You would move them from darkness to light today, God, that you would rescue and save um, because of what Jesus has done for them. Die on the cross in their place and rescue them from the domain of darkness. God, I pray today that you would save those who are on the fence. God, we love you. We thank you for our time together. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we've said, Jesus is going to Jerusalem at the time uh, of the Passover feast. And and there's no doubt, this is very much God's plan and purpose. Passover is this time that they remembered God's salvation uh, from Egypt. And what they did, remember on the original Passover, they all had to find a spotless, perfect lamb. And they had to kill that lamb. And they had to put the blood on the doorpost so that when the angel came, what happened? He passed over them, right? And this is very much on purpose. Uh, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at this time. And he knows that his purpose is what? To be sacrificed as the lamb of God for the sins of the people. At the same time that all these Jews in in the city are celebrating Passover and they're sacrificing little lambs as as a picture of what Jesus is going to do on the Friday of this week. There's so much more we could talk about with the timing of all of this. Um, But it says that he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, uh, the Mount of Olives. He's about two miles east of Jerusalem. This is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are from. Lazarus, remember who he has raised from the dead. Mary and Martha, who he's done immense work and teaching in their life. Now, according to their instructions, they were supposed to select their lambs on a certain day of the month of Nisan, and I won't get into all the details, but they selected on a certain day, and then they sacrificed it about four or five days later. 
And I'd have you know today that the day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey is the day that everyone in the town is selecting their lamb to be sacrificed. It's not a coincidence that Jesus arrives at the time that he does. Just as everybody else is selecting their spotless lamb, it's as if the Father is selecting his spotless, perfect lamb. And Jesus sends two disciples to this village to go find a donkey. I always found this story really strange as a kid, not going to lie. I'm like, aren't we told not to take other people's stuff? Like, this seems weird, Jesus, right? Um, And I still kind of find it weird after this week. But Jesus knows everything, and I don't, I don't think that he, he's stealing this. I think the donkey got returned. Let me just say that, okay? He didn't steal it. He just borrowed it, okay? Uh, but I don't get the impression from the Gospels that, this, that, that like, he had sent word ahead. Like, he just sent two disciples. God knows everything, and Jesus knew there would be a cult. He had ordained it to be there, and so he sends these disciples to go to this house and to go get it. And it says that it's a cult which no one has ever set on. There's some significance there, that, that this is a, a pure, unstained cult. This is not some run-of-the-mill, average donkey. It's, it's unused. It's been set aside. It's, it's holy, in a sense. No one else has ridden on it. Everything in this story, there's, there's immense significance and purpose. Even this little, tiny cult that's tied up in Bethpage. And they're supposed to go and get it. Now, I don't know about you, I'd be a nervous wreck if I was one of those two disciples and I knew I'm about to have a confrontation with somebody as I steal their donkey and I know what I'm supposed to say according to Jesus, I would have been a nervous wreck. I would have replayed that conversation in my head over and over. Okay, here's what I'm going to say and I'm just going to act confident and maybe they'll just, they'll just let me have the donkey. Maybe this will work out. <laughs> but what are they supposed to say when they get there? The Lord has need of it. The Lord. There's massive significance in that word. Who are they talking about? Jesus. The Lord is a word that's reserved for God as master, as Lord. It's not unlikely that the people that he borrowed it from would have known at that moment that it was Jesus, the Lord. They had called him that already. And so they get there, and they would have understood when they get there that if the Lord has need of it, you can borrow it. So they get there, the disciples go, what do they find? Things exactly as Jesus has told them it's going to be. He's in full control of this story. He has full knowledge of all the little details, even the, the tiny cult that's never been ridden on. He, has, he knows exactly where it's going to be. He has all of that planned out. Why? Because he's been sent here Father to accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. There is so much purpose and intentionality in this whole story because this is the pinnacle. We have reached the pinnacle of the whole story of the Bible. Everything has been leading to this and everything after it points back to it this week. And so nothing, no detail is left undone. And so they have this conversation, right? This awkward conversation. And they get the donkey. They bring it back to Jesus. And it says that they, they throw their cloaks on it. They make kind of a makeshift little saddle. And Jesus hops on this donkey. Now, why a donkey? Why a baby little donkey? Why not just walk? 
Well, what's the significance of having to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Why not a horse? That sounds way more sturdy and fast, and you could get there quicker and more efficiently, right? Well, why a donkey? And I don't have an answer besides this is what God's plan was. Jesus knows that if he's going to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, what God had said was going to happen, he would have to fulfill Zechariah 9. Here's what it says. Zechariah 9, written five or six hundred years before this, says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's the people of God. Behold, your king is coming to you. And they might expect a horse. They might expect grandeur. They might expect a massive coronation. But here's what it says. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling every word of the Old Testament, even this simple instruction that the king would not come on a horse, not come in with an army behind him. No, he comes on the foal of a donkey. He's coming humbly, just like he came in the manger humbly. He's not coming uh, with pomp and circumstance. He's not coming with any of that. No, he's coming righteous, not proud and arrogant. He's coming just as the Old Testament said he would come in. And what's he coming to be? The Lamb of God. Now, we should note here that in one day, Jesus will return. And let me tell you this, he's not coming back on a donkey. He's not riding into Jerusalem on a little foal of a donkey. No, what does Revelation tell us? That he'll be riding a white horse with a sword strapped to his thigh, with a name that we don't have all the time for that. What's he coming back for that time? To be king, fully and finally. It's a day of judgment against those who are his enemies. On this day, as he enters Jerusalem, he's not coming as a king with a horse, on a horse with a sword strapped to his thigh. No, he's coming as a humble lamb of God who will be their king. And the way he's going to be their king is through his sacrifice. And so they're spreading their cloaks out on the road. Again, I'm thinking, this is real impractical, guys. You're going to have to wash those now. This is a, well, why? What is this? But they are honoring him as only, the only way they know how. It's a sign of submission and honor that we're preparing the way of the Lord. We're, we're, we're getting this just right. And they're saying, King, we love you. We honor you. We want to follow you. They have this really beautiful view of who Jesus is at this moment. It's not going to stay that way all week. <laughs> they're going to miss it at some times. But at this moment, they have a really good, right, true view of Jesus, that he is the king. And it says in verse 37 that as he drew near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Not only are they placing their cloaks down, but they are shouting and praising Jesus, the one riding the colt, for all the mighty works that he has done. They're remembering the last three years. They're, they're recalling all the miracles that they saw. They're shouting out, 
Praise you, Jesus. You raised Lazarus from the dead. Praise you, Jesus. You, you healed my blind sister. Praise you, Jesus. You turned water into wine. You fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And they just kept going and going and going, recalling all the mighty works that he had done in his time. And you can almost sense it. This excitement is building. He's riding in. There's, there's a crowd, and they're all on the same page. They're shouting, praise King Jesus for all that he has done. And look at verse 38. Not only are they remembering the works that he did, verse 38 says that they were saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We, we might just kind of skip over that, but, but they said, blessed is the king. This is very strong language, okay? This is, this is provocative language in their day. The only king was Caesar, not any of their Jewish people. So they're hailing somebody else saying, this is the rightful king. For them to proclaim this about Jesus means that they truly believe he is the Messiah. He is the one who the Lord has sent. Blessed is the king, again it says, who comes in the name of the Lord. They believe Jesus has been sent by God as the Messiah. He's sent by God to be their rescuer, their anointed one, their king. This is huge language. And then it says, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The only person who can bring peace in heaven, peace between them and God, is the Messiah. And glory in the highest, these are words reserved for God himself. They would not praise some human like that. And so for anybody that says none of his disciples ever believed he was God, no. They believe he is the Messiah they believe he is God in flesh sent to save them. Glory in the highest. Now, up until this point, every time that somebody has recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, what has Jesus typically done? Shh. Don't tell anybody. Shh. Hey, we need to keep this under wraps. Hey, don't, don't go share this message quite yet. My time is not Yet, Jesus has squashed this news from spreading, but no, no longer. The time has come for everyone to hear and, and see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the King. That's what he wants. He doesn't stop it. Verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. These Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you've got to stop this. We cannot be having a bunch of us proclaiming somebody else as king. You need to stop this. This is going to go bad for us. This is going to go bad for you. The Romans are going to hear this. They are not going to like it. That could have been their concern. Or maybe their concern was actually, no, he's not the Messiah. No, he's not the king. And maybe their concern was actually even worse than that, that Jesus, rebuke your disciples because you're getting all the attention and we're not. They're so concerned with themselves. But Jesus will not have it. 
Now, the people's view, let me just be clear, a lot of these disciples' view of what Jesus was about to do was off. Jesus was not coming at this moment with a sword on his thigh, coming to kick booty and take names, as Steve Bishop would say, but he forgot his pencil. Like, that's not what he's there for, right? It's not what, he's not here this day for that. They're off. They expect this is a coronation. Jesus is about to take over. We're about to have a revolution. We're about to no longer be those who are trotted upon. We're about to be in, in control. But Jesus knows the actual truth. That what he is there for is to be not the king right now. It's to be the lamb of God who dies and bears the sin of the people. And so Jesus says in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, if the crowd was silent, the very stones would cry out. If they were silent, the stones would cry out. Jesus has said this in some other contexts before, but Jesus is pointing to this truth. You can't stop this. This is already in motion. What God has intended from the very beginning, you can't stop. And if these people are quiet, creation would cry out, this is the Messiah. They're finding out exactly who Jesus is. There's nothing hidden anymore. It is clear to all that were there in Jerusalem that day and that week that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, was affirmed to be the Messiah by all these people. He is the King. Now this crowd, the honest truth is this, this crowd is fickle, <laughs> and things are going to change throughout this week. This, not all of this crowd at the end of the week is going to be proclaiming, that's the king. They're not all going to be there. They're not all going to be on the same page. Actually, the next time a crowd shouts in this story, do you know what it shouts? Crucify him, crucify him, Right? And at that point, though the rocks don't cry out, one day these rocks will cry out against these people who have rejected him as the Messiah. The thought of the crowds rejecting Jesus at this moment is, is terrible. And Jesus begins to see this, and he knows what's going to happen, and it leads him to a place of sadness, of weeping, right? Why? Because he's broken, because they're re he knows they're going to reject him. He knows they're going to turn from him. So that's, that's where we find our next two little stories. Let's look at verse 41. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. This is the strongest word for crying in the Greek. So whatever strongest crying that you can imagine in your own life, whatever that moment's been, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a loved one, whatever that's been, this is the word. This is deep sobbing and weeping over what? The state of these people who have rejected him, right? Jesus is not rejoicing because he has enemies. Jesus is not rejoicing because he's going to crush them one day. He has no desire to do that. He's weeping over their sin and their rejection. And he says in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is agonizing over their hypocrisy, their shallowness, their works-based attempts to 
to make peace between them and God. And he says, would you have known? I wish that you would have known the things that actually make for peace. He's saying, he's saying you've tried so many things. You've tried to be good. You've tried to be religious. You've tried to give. You've tried to sacrifice. You've tried all these things to make peace. And he says, I wish you would have known the thing that makes peace. I wish you would have known the thing that makes peace. They don't know it. They don't know that it's belief in Jesus and repentance from their sins, believing the message of the kingdom. No, they've turned from that. And he says, it's been hidden from you. They've seen it. They were witnesses to it, just like the disciples. And he tells them here what's going to happen in the future. Verse 43. He says, because of your rejection. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because they reject God, he's saying this, there's coming a day that judgment will come. Yes, I'm coming as the Lamb of God. I'm dying on the cross for everyone so that everyone has the possibility to be saved. But he says, for those that reject me, those that do not turn to me, he says, there's a judgment coming. Now, this judgment that he speaks of, it only takes 40 years for it to come true. In about 70 AD, there's a Jewish revolution and the Romans rise up and squash it. And they destroy the people that tried to rebel against them. And they destroy Jerusalem. They tear down the temple. They tear it down. They do not leave one stone unturned. They humiliate the people of Israel. Why? Because they rose up against them. But why did God allow that? Because they had turned and they had rejected their own Messiah, the one who knew the things that make for peace. Now it's interesting, he says no stone would be unturned. And he just said in the previous that these stones would cry out against you. And I think that's actually what Jesus is talking about. The stones that would cry out against them are the stones of the temple that fell and would cry out against them because they rejected the Messiah, because they did not know the time of your visitation. They missed it. They had all of it right in front of them. They had seen the signs. They had all the information. But they were so caught up in their religious system, their religious attempt to find peace between them and God, that they missed it. Remember, Jesus is not gloating over them with this message. He is weeping over their lostness because John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 45, let's keep going. It says he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus enters the temple, the place where God's people met with him, where his presence dwelled, where they made sacrifices. This is the most holy, reverent of places. This is their key to a relationship with God. And in the temple, there's things that are going on that were never intended to be going on. 
This was a physical representation of where God's presence would be so they could come and meet with him through sacrifice. And what, had, what it had turned into is the outer courts and, and all over had turned into just a marketplace. People selling all kinds of things for sacrifices, all kinds of whatever, knickknacks, whatever. And it had become this place of noise and nonsense, not a place of reverence and respect It had become irreverent and disrespectful. It had become a place where somebody could make a buck instead of a place of worship and connection with God. And so Jesus sees what's happening. He sees them rejecting him, and he sees this that's not right. And what does he do? He comes in and he drives them out. He's full of righteous anger, and he says, no, 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 you've missed it in so many ways, but you've missed it right here. My house, my father's house is a place of prayer. It's a place where, where humanity can speak with God, and God can speak with humanity, and you've made it a den of robbers. You've made it a marketplace. He quotes this from Isaiah 56, 7, that, that God's house will be a house of prayer for all peoples, all the nations. This temple was meant to be a light. It's meant to be a physical representation of this. So he drove them out. And it says in verse 47 that after he did this, he continued teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus didn't go into hiding this last week. After he enters in this makeshift coronation, being held as king, driving these people out, weeping over their lostness, he goes to the temple and he continues to teach. He continues to try to persuade them of the kingdom of God, of the goodness of of him. And though they have heard his teaching, though they've seen his miracles, though they've heard him proclaim the word of God, these Pharisees, these most important men among the Jews, what are they trying to do? It says they're trying to destroy him. They're trying to tear him down. They have actively become enemies of God himself. They're trying to find something, something they can do. But what does it say? They did not find anything they could do for the people were hanging on his words. They made a political decision at this moment that the crowd wasn't with them, it wasn't worth it yet. But the political winds are going to change by the end of the week. And they're going to try to stick something to him that doesn't actually stick. Because the perfect Son of God was above reproach. And those, the crowds will turn later in the week. The crowds are hanging on his every word. Why? Because it's the word of God. And it's what's giving them life. Now, just to close, the picture that we see here is this, is a contrast. Jesus has become this very clear dividing line. You are either his follower who hangs on every word, or you are his enemy who is actively working against him. And that spiritual reality is true at all times in this room too. And I'm not saying these people are his followers and you people in these rows are his enemies. There's a dividing line. And we're either one or the other. His enemies are those who are actively trying to destroy him. The people who do not want them. You think about all the recent teachings that he's just done. The people that do not want him to be their ruler. And they're plotting and working against them. 
It's the people who walk away sad because their wealth is more important than following Jesus like the rich young ruler. It's the people that refuse to use what the master has given them in in minas and use it for his kingdom. Those are his enemies. It's the people who pray for personal recognition and to be heard by others, not for the mercy of God. It's the people who refuse to help the, the poor man at their door. That's his enemies. All the stories that Jesus has just told, there's an enemy. There's those who are actively working against God. And the question we all have to ask ourselves, am I his enemy or am I his follower? The followers are those who are hanging on his every word, who know that you, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. It's those who serve him because he's worthy. Those who live God-centered lives. Those who are persistent in prayer like the widow. Those who cry out for mercy, not boast in their prayers. It's those like Zacchaeus that gladly give up their possessions because they know that Jesus is worth it. It's those like the good servants who use the king's stuff, the minus, and they use it to advance his kingdom. And the point is this, I think that Jesus has made over and over again, and then I'm done. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either following me actively and it plays itself out in your life, or you're against me. There's no other option here. And as Jesus comes in and is hailed as king, we have to answer that question. Am I with him or am I against him? Let me pray. God, I pray today that as we see uh, the truth of what's happening, as we, as we hear this story about how you entered Jerusalem, how you, how you begin to teach, how you begin to push out those who are your enemies, God, I pray that each one of us would ask that all-important question of am I your enemy still or am I your follower? All the examples we see of those who are following you, there's real following. It's not just just this mental kind of decision. There's real application to their life. There's real life change that happens to those who believe in the word of the kingdom, God. They help, they serve, they give, they invest, they, they follow. Their life is forever changed. And so I pray today, God, if that's us in the room, God, and we proclaim to believe this message, God, may we actually be following you. May we actually be loving our neighbor, actually being welcoming the stranger. May we doing all that you have called us to do, walking in obedience, walking in the new kingdom, God. God, I pray that you would help us to actually follow you, not just to proclaim it with our mouths, God. Our words are fickle, God, but our lives and how we live it is not. And so I pray today that if there's someone riding the fence in here today, that they would see that Jesus is worth it, that he really is the king who planned this all out, who knows everything and does everything. God, and he is the lamb of God who died in our place to rescue us from the slavery of sin and to set us free to live a life for you, King Jesus. And so I pray today, God, that we would follow you with everything that we have. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.